to this podcast by the National Institute of Economic and Social Research, NISA. I'm Paola Buonadonna. It's not news that Britain's productivity is weak, weaker than that of other advanced economies. This has been the story since the financial crash of 2008, but as the Office of Budget Responsibility confirmed this week, the situation is not going to improve any time soon. There is talk of another lost decade. But is this inevitable? Can something be done about it? Which levers should we pull to get productivity pumping again? Our assistant research director, Monique Bell, has just published a new report funded by the Association of British Insurers that might just shed new light on one particular aspect of the UK situation. So thank you for joining us, Monique. My pleasure. And the thing you looked at, which might have implications for our growth, is our obsession with home ownership. Tell us what you found. We found that, first of all, there is some evidence to indicate that there is indeed a trade-off between saving or paying down a mortgage in order to buy a house and saving for a pension. The second thing then that we looked into is what kinds of an impacts that crowding out of pension savings might have. Now, you might think, what does it matter? You know, if I save if I consider my house to be my pension, or if I consider my pension to be my pension. Why should that matter for the rest of the economy? The important thing to remember is that housing is in itself not really a productive investment. It doesn't lead to more capital accumulation, either physical capital like machines and computers, or intangible capital like R&D or patents, things that make the economy more productive. We don't produce anything just by building houses. We live in them, we trade them. Exactly. So I live in my house, Mm. and that, of course, gives me a consumption value, Mm -hmm. right? Because you'd have to rent otherwise, yeah? Exactly. That gives me a Mm -hmm. dividend. But whether my house is worth 200,000 or 400,000 pounds doesn't affect the consumption value, right? It just means there's more money sitting there in my house and tied up in my house than um, that could otherwise be used somewhere to finance productive investment in the economy. So this paper was in two parts. And first of all, as as I understand it, you looked at the repercussions on people's personal long-term savings, uh, whether they decided to take a mortgage or not, so to buy a house or not. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? We found that people who either who bought outright without a mortgage, for them, there was not really a trade-off between saving for a pension and saving and, and, and investing in a house. Presumably they were rich people. This is a rather small group. <laughs> <laughs> um, however, people who were buying with a mortgage, like most of us, um, that did lead to a significant Inc- or sorry, decrease in the amount they were saving into a pension. Can you give us a sense of how much we're talking sure. about? So if you remember that, on average, savings into private pension are about 5% of someone's income. Mm-hmm. Um, we found that, that decreased to about 4%. Mm-hmm. Now that sounds like you know one percentage point difference, but if it's you're... It's a fifth. It's a fifth. Yeah. It's a fifth smaller, and that's quite a large impact. We also looked at the impact of having bought a house with a mortgage on future pension income. And we found that that future pension income was then about 15% lower um, for people who had bought with a mortgage. And 
Also, we found that people who had bought a house with a mortgage were somewhat more likely to be in financial difficulties in retirement mm. than people who had either never bought a house or who had bought outright. But then there was a second part of this report uh, where, where things really got quite interesting in terms of the economy at large. You, you described what happened at the macro level. You did, as I understand it, some simulations using NISA's own econometric model, NIGEM, and you got some amazing results. Can you take us step by step into what it is that you were simulating and what results you got? One of the things that is a bit unique about the UK economy is the share of our household wealth that we hold in the form of dwellings, in the form of residential housing. It's about 60%. Right? Now, that's much larger than in other countries. At the same time, we also have one of the lowest rates of business investment of GDP in uh, the OECD and among the advanced economies. So while other countries, comparable advanced European economies, generally invest about 12 to 15 percent of their GDP, we're down around 9 or 10 percent. And that's, of course, that's a long-standing issue in the UK. And one of the things we were trying to understand is Let's imagine that maybe these two facts are linked. Maybe one of the reasons that our business investment is so low is that our pension savings, which is one of the ways in which investor savings flow into businesses, are just in some ways lower because we're putting so much into our houses. And of course, what we invest in our houses, as you said before, is frozen there. It doesn't go anywhere else. The value of the house doesn't get unlocked in any other way unless we sell it. Exactly. So productivity in the UK economy, that is how much we're able to produce, how much every worker is able to produce in an hour, doesn't increase because our houses have become more valuable. Indeed. Right? Um, except in some very, very small sectors of the economy, like the private rented accommodation sector, right? But setting that one aside, sure. Sure. <laughs> for everyone else, it doesn't really help. So what did you simulate? What, what? So what we looked into was what might be the impact on the UK economy if our business investment rates looked more like those of other EU, uh, sorry, other advanced uh, economies, and what would happen also if our allocation, so the split of our savings between housing and business investment, looked also more like that in other advanced economies. And what we found was that even if we kept the overall amount of investment in the UK economy fixed, but we just shifted the share of business investment up and the share of housing investment down, um, we would end up with about with productivity that's about 2.3% higher and GDP that's about 55 billion higher, um, but in, 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 in a long term, and by long term I mean about 10 to 12 years, than it otherwise would have been. So, you know, that's a lot of that's money. That's not nothing. No, I mean, those are, those are numbers that are of a similar magnitude to some of the numbers that are being tossed around uh, in terms of the impact of some of the softer forms of Brexit. So, you know, these are fairly big, big impacts. And that's not coming, in our modeling at least, because 
we're actually saving or investing more, more by just shifting yeah. away from housing and toward business investment. More similar to the pattern that you might observe in France or in Germany, other advanced economies in Europe and elsewhere in the world. Exactly. Then in a second stage, we took this one step further and said, okay, what if we were to then also increase our total investment to, which is a bit lower than a lot of advanced economies, to be more in line with other big economies like France and Germany. Keeping also the, the splits uh, sort of similar to those of other advanced economies. Exactly. Yes. So in the second scenario, yeah. we both make our split more similar in that, in that we have a bigger share of in, uh, business investment and a smaller share of housing investment than we do now, and we raise the overall level to be more in line with other countries. Um, and what we find is that then the increase in UK productivity over a 10 to 12 year span is even bigger. It's now 3.8% higher than it would have been otherwise, and that translates into GDP that is about 90 billion a year higher. That is, again, another huge number. And it translates in jobs and, and, and other factors, right? In our modelling, we find that the first scenario generates about 160,000 extra jobs by 2028. And in the second scenario, it's about 220,000 jobs. But of course, what we haven't done yeah. is to work out or is to specify what kind of policies could lead to that kind of a shift in investment. So what makes Brits so keen to invest in housing compared to people in other countries? Another thing that's perhaps unique about the UK is that although many other countries also tax advantage owner-occupied housing to some extent, the UK goes beyond what many other countries do. So for example, um, the capital gains so the increase in value of your house that you realise when you sell it, there's absolutely no tax on it if it's your primary residence in the UK. Now, um, as you can hear from my accent, I'm originally from the US, There, there's an exemption of a couple hundred thousand dollars that you're allowed to earn tax-free in capital gains on your house, but anything above that is taxed pretty much at your rate of, as, as a capital gain on stocks or shares or an investment in a small business would be. Um, the other thing that's a bit unusual about um, the UK is that although we have council tax, it hasn't been updated in line with changes in the value of housing for more than two decades, yeah. right? So that's made it into actually quite a regressive tax. Mm -hmm. Those two things actually lead up to housing in the UK being quite tax advantaged. Mm -hmm. So if I put money into my house, I don't pay tax on the capital gains. A council tax is really quite low mm -hmm. for many people compared mm -hmm. to the value of the house. It, it's also inheritance tax sheltered mm -hmm. to a greater extent than other assets. Mm -hmm. So that pushes people to invest in housing rather than in small businesses where the capital gains are taxed, where the dividends are taxed, and where that any inheritance is taxed 
at with smaller exemptions. So what might make perfect sense, perfect rational sense at an individual level, uh, apart from the fact that they might discover they don't have such a high income in retirement, but that's another story, um, ends up penalising the economy as a whole. We're saying that there could be a link, right? It's, of course, it's always difficult to establish beyond a shadow of a doubt mm-hmm. that this is what is happening. Mm-hmm. But we think that we've demonstrated that this link could be important, yeah? And I think further research is really necessary to better understand exactly what's going on and to try to understand what kinds of policies might lead us in a direction that would be better for productivity. So what should policymakers who are scratching their heads about productivity in the UK take away from your findings? Well, I think one of the main things they should take away is that... We are not making investing in businesses attractive enough. And that might be one of the reasons that we have this very long-term productivity problem. They might also start to think about ways in which we can level the playing field between investing in houses and investing in other kinds, investing in businesses. And one of those ways a very simple way, would be to allow council tax to become the kind of more progressive tax that it used to be a couple of decades ago, right? So allowing council tax to become more progressive to better reflect the much increased valuations in housing that we've had in some parts of the country Um, would be, I think, one way to level that playing field. The other thing that is making housing an attractive investment compared to businesses is the feeling that we have very strong, or or the idea that we have very strong planning restrictions plus demographic change that seems to be inexorably driving house prices up. Um, So anything that mitigates that seemingly endless upward spiral of house prices in the UK would also be helpful. Um, Now, there's another aspect, I think another reason that a more progressive council tax would be good, and that is if we're interested in increasing housing supply, there are two ways to do it. One way to increase housing supply is, of course, to build more houses. That's obvious. But the second, kind of less obvious way to increase housing supply is to make sure that housing is distributed in what we would call a more efficient way. Now, one thing that we observe is that people often, because housing is tax-advantaged, people alloc- if people are allocating more of their wealth into houses than they otherwise would to take advantage of that tax shelter, they might be staying in houses that are maybe larger than they even want to be in for financial reasons or because this is a way that they can pass money along to their children in a tax-advantaged way. Now, if instead we were to provide to weaken some of those incentives, then we might see that we might see more willingness to downsize Mm -hmm. that would reduce pressure on reduce demand pressure, particularly on sort of larger homes that are appropriate for young families who are, to be fair, really struggling to get on the housing ladder. Indeed. 
Well, thank you, Monique. This is all we've got time for today, but clearly the report is well worth a read. It's entitled, Is an Englishman's Home is Castle? And you can find it on our website, together with other podcasts, blogs and specialist briefings. The address is www.niesr.ac.uk. Goodbye. <music>